0: Welcome to High Iso, the photography and business podcast, where we talk about life as a professional photographer.
1: I'm Robert Hall, an editorial photographer from Michigan.
0: And I'm Justin Haugen, a wedding and portrait photographer from Arizona.
1: what's going on justin
0: not a whole lot man just trying to stay cool it's freaking hot out here in arizona how hot uh it was 102 today which is actually cool by our summer standards like i think in phoenix it's 114 degrees Ugh.
1: that sounds yeah.
0: awful and uh, our monsoon season's kicking up too so humidity is rising and so it's not it's not a dry heat anymore
1: that's what people always say when like oh it's so hot out there i can't do it and then it's like but it's a dry heat Versus here, it was about 86 today, and I was like sweating profusely because it was like so sticky and wet outside because of the humidity. It was, and I mean, I was working too, so that doesn't help. But even the people who were just kind of standing around were like, oh my gosh, I can't stay out here any longer. Just sweating so much.
0: Yeah, it's pretty gross, man. Um, in other news, we have a big camera announcement. And I hope by the time this lands on the internet that it's actually relevant to people still. I think it will be because I think people are going to be talking about this camera for, for the foreseeable future. Uh, the A7R four was announced. Uh, any feelings, initial feelings and thoughts on that camera?
1: Uh, I'm kind of boycotting Sony until they until they move the one thing that I really like about that camera to all the other cameras via firmware, which is finally changing the focus point color from gray to, you get to select, I believe, between gray, white, or red, which is what it should have been all along, because gray is just such a terrible decision to put a mid-tone value for your focus point that you're trying to move around all these things in the scene, Um, especially when you consider that the whole purpose of the camera to balance you know, when it's uh, when it's not just showing you your your camera settings, it's going to try to make things look neutral, right? It's going to try to get them in those midtone values, which you just lose that autofocus point all the time. And like in skies and, you know, in in solid patterns or solid walls, anything consistent, you just easily lose that focus point should have been right all along. So I most definitely will not buy it unless it comes out. On other cameras, and then I'll consider.
0: Yeah, that would drive me crazy. Um, for me, like my initial impression of it is that it has a lot of people who don't have a qualified use for 61 megapixels thinking they need that camera. And while I'm like, I'm cool with all of the other advancements in dynamic range and auto, perf- auto focus performance, and of course, it comes with every new iteration of a camera, uh, the dual UHS 2 cards is handy. Uh, the average user, I, I know we know a lot of photographers and I can only pick out maybe five and I'd be lucky to say 10 photographers who actually qualify or warrant the use of a 61 megapixel file. You know, I'm shooting dual uh, D850s, uh, both with 45 megapixels, and I shoot an RAW pretty much 95 percent of the time because I don't want the hassle of managing large files like that because it brings out a whole new slew of issues with uh, workflow, fast card, fast, high capacity cards. And then fast, high capacity um, external storage uh, on your computer and your workflow. So plus the computers to support it. So I'm a little, I think it's, I, I think it was the camera that nobody was asking for right now.
1: Yeah, yeah. Both of what was like the instant joke? You kind of came at me with a joke about it. And then I immediately followed up with how I had just posted that in another group. Like, yeah.
0: It was like I said, uh, absolutely no one, like uh, like those memes, like absolutely yeah. no one, as in nobody was asking for something. And then Sony was like, hey guys, here's a 61 megapixel camera.
1: Yeah. And uh, meanwhile, I'm just thinking like the one thing anybody's been asking for from Sony is like, hey, flippy screen, flippy screen, make it work. There's no Which, flippy
0: screen. I thought you guys had no, flippy screens.
1: It's a tilt screen
0: still. Oh, so it only has like a 45 degree angle if you lift it from the bottom. Yep. And what about like if you hold it upright and bring the top forward, just like a 45 degree?
1: Not even, I don't think.
0: Wow, even my D850 does a flat 90-degree angle.
1: Yeah, it's a joke. Um, They should be flip-out. They've always should have been flip-out. And, you know, I find it... I would think that the the one claim I've heard is like, well, Canon's got a patent on whatever that is, and, you know, there's probably only so many ways that you can make it, which would make sense. Like, Fuji has tried to get around it with, like, the odd tilting, dual tilting directions. Uh, Sony hasn't embraced it yet. Nikon hasn't. But... Then I saw the other day, I'm looking at my, my buddy's uh, video camcorder, and it's got a complete flip out screen. You can turn it around completely. So I don't know if there's some combination between like DSLR or mirrorless and flippy screens that limits it to Canon only, but uh, it's just the one thing that Sony needs to do. And uh, the fact that they're like, oh yeah, we'll get 61. I mean, I get it. They... They want to stay ahead of maybe whatever pro body canon's going to announce the dual UHS2 card slots was definitely a good move because that's one of the things I dislike about the uh, current generation A7 A9 or I forget if the A9 is two UHS2. I think it is it is and yeah then I don't I really don't know why they didn't bring that down to the A7 series, but anyway, yeah, the dual card slots is definitely appreciated. A little bit of control changes, beefier grip faster evf hopefully that's a little bit more natural because that's something they've fallen behind on so there's there's good things and it really didn't come with that significant of a price jump same price as the uh a7r4 was or a7r3 was when it came out so ultimately not too bad but yeah i'm boycotting until they address that with uh, firmware
0: oh for the other cameras right because i thought this camera had a red red focus um selection yes
1: yeah, so this one does but my i'm, I'm still like I will not buy this camera if Sony mm-hmm. does not make that a uh, a firmware adjustment on the previous generation cameras because it should have been addressed forever. I mean, I'm t- I, when I think about a feature like that, that's something that I could probably Google how to find that line of code in firmware and how to change whatever the hex code is for the color mm-hmm. in there. You know, that's something that I could probably figure out in a week. So the fact that it hasn't been addressed with firmware is just embarrassing.
0: Yeah, that's a that's a head scratcher for sure. I I think for me, like what keeps this camera from being a serious contender for me is that no medium raw, full frame medium raw feature. Could you imagine a 30 megapixel medium raw file out of this thing? It would be it'd be like the end all camera uh, right now for this current gen. Like I wouldn't have to buy an a7 III if I was in the market. I could look at the a7 Mark IV as a de facto solution for the majority of the work that I do, like the 95 percent and then the 5 percent of the work, if that that even calls for uh, that amount of resolution at 61 megapixels. Can you can you imagine like how much more popular the camera would be?
1: Yeah, yeah, you have a much better winner on your hand. That's another thing that, you know, Nikon didn't do for the longest time. You know, even back with the D810, they didn't have a medium raw. They had a small raw only. And it was like, well, what the hell is this? Where's the medium? And uh, another thing that people have attributed to Canon patents. But yeah, apparently you're saying that Nikon got around it with uh, the D850?
0: Yeah, they finally did it. I've always heard the, the, the medium raw patent was owned by Canon and that's why other camera brands didn't have it. I don't know how Nikon got it or if it took them you know, buying the rights to that patent to be able to use it in their um, in this application. But I I love it because I actually had seen some initial uh, reviews showing that the medium raw was soft. And I, in application, I just can't discern that quality of detail um, on people's faces. It all looks sharp to me. So, uh, I've been running with it. It's been great for the work that I need, that I've been doing and the, the dynamic range, the recovery is there. Even at MRA, I think you're at 12 bit instead of 14 bit files. Uh, still plenty of dynamic range on the D850 sensor. So I I love that. And it's it's made the D850 a, an amazing overall camera for me. And I, I finally feel like I've settled into the camera I've been I've meant to had, have for the work that I'm doing.
1: One thing that's also confusing to me is this whole 15 stops dynamic range thing. Because I feel like they said that about the a7R 3 And there's always a difference between the spec dynamic range that people actually test versus what they market. You know, they market some perfect photo example. Um, and and that's how they got 15 stops of dynamic range, but yeah, um, I I don't understand that because I feel like I've already heard 15 or maybe it was like 14.8 or something like that, but I I don't expect there to be that significance of of a dynamic range difference between this and the a seven R three, which just makes it, I don't know, it looks like a complete skip for me. Like the only two things that I could see myself really benefiting from it are the focus point color and the, uh, dual uhs2 card slots because yeah yeah, 61 megapixels even for me someone who does actually benefit because i'm doing a lot of large print work and a lot of times we're doing it on really awkward sized posters where you know starting with 42 megapixels and then we crop in this weird way or we decide to go vertical on a shot that i did horizontal Then all of a sudden, boom, you're down to like 21 and you're not meeting the print standards anymore, you know, if you wanted maximum DPI. But Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I could almost make a case for some unique situations, but for the most part, 42 is beyond okay.
0: Yeah, I actually think it drives a value to the a7 Mark III. I think it makes that camera a little more uh, valuable now because inevitably the prices are going to drop on that camera. Uh, So I think you're going to get if you push it into the $2,500 range, that camera becomes a lot more reasonable because now you can I mean, I'd like to think 42 megapixels is more manageable anyway, but it's still that's still a lot of pixel data. The files are pretty big. I think you're looking at 100 megabyte files close to if you're shooting at 42 megapixels. Uh, but I think the value now um, it pushes people more towards the A7R three. I bet you that camera is going to sell even better now um, with the presence of this camera because I just feel like there's going to be a lot of unqualified uh, shooters using 61 megapixels that don't even know that they why they need that much resolution.
1: Yeah, I mean, if we just need to do a quick PSA here, if you're printing an 11 by 14, you need 4,200 pixels on the long edge to have maximum quality for close distance. Uh, you know, 4,200 on the long edge, that's what, a 12 megapixel camera? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, if you're not printing over 30 inches, you, you don't need to be looking at a 60 megapixel body at all. You just don't. Um, and, and if your use case, like this is like what we're both thinking, we're, we're seeing people whose primary use and, and showcasing their work is social media in which you're downsizing everything to 20 two thousand forty eight pixels you're downsizing everything to three megapixels you know mm-hmm. um, so the idea that you're like you know swooning over 60 megapixels oh I finally have this is just kind of I don't know
0: bizarre and I find what happens when you start looking at uh these files and I, I noticed this when I got into the d850 and I was looking at hundred uh, percent zooms one to one zooms of my files I started to discern a lot of detail that I otherwise wouldn't have in previous files that were like 24 25 megapixels and i started to get very neurotic about pores and skin and, and i realized the level of detail just dis- you're discerning grew when you're at a one-to-one zoom and then then having to pull back and like reassure myself that most most of the average people are going to view these images no bigger than 8 by 10 8 by 12 inches on average and if and and like an even larger percentage of that are going to see it uh, on social media where you won't you'll never discern that level of detail unless you're giving people full-size files to download which you shouldn't be anyway so I had to talk myself off that ledge the other thing I started to notice was uh, pixel blur where I wouldn't have seen it previously because you're looking yep. at, at 45 megapixels uh, if your technique is off and if your shutter speeds aren't high enough you'll notice uh, pixel blur more than you would have uh, with previous cameras so there becomes like a impractical point of diminishing returns on the on the use case for the for these high megapixel sensors because um, you're starting to discern detail that other people aren't even going to you're going to you're going to like nitpick detail that other people aren't going to be able to visibly discern for themselves Uh, and then even in the case of large format printing i agree with like a fine fine art large format printing or a situation where you might need a a different crop, like if you want to crop vertical from a horizontal, I can see that from a from a large megapixel file. But uh, people, some some people have thrown out the conversation of what about billboards or vehicle wraps or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, and and that's a whole other topic that I don't think people are well versed in. Either it's about um, minimum viewing distance uh, from from what you're looking at. If you're going to take an entire scene of a billboard, you're generally you know several hundred feet away from it uh, until you, even when you drive up to it, you know maybe the closest you'll see it is from hundred feet. And you're never going to discern the amount of detail that you would be needed in like a high megapixel situation. You're going to you're I've actually seen at a buddy who had an entire ve- double double vehicle trailer wrap. He had a eight megapixel file on the side of that um, side of that trailer of, of a car that he photographed. So eight megapixels did a whole trailer wrap. And because why when you're five inches from it, you know, five feet from it, and you're looking right at it. Um, those details mean nothing. You know at what you're looking at. You need to back up and see the whole thing in its entirety so visible dist- viewing distance is a big part of that.
1: Yeah, if your argument is billboards, let me tell you I have roughly 20 billboards up on on I75 right now in Michigan and I was shocked at the, that was kind of when I went into it, I was thinking, oh, finally I got purpose for this uh, A7R3's megapixels. And lo and behold, it was not the billboards that I needed the megapixels at all for. Somebody sent me one of the files to one of the billboards that uh, we have up right now. And I was shocked that the file that they distribute to the company is 390 kilobytes. What? Yep. That's well, hilarious. here... Everything is switching to uh, digital. They're all digital billboards and like, you Mm. know, rolling like five different ones. Those aren't those aren't 4K screens up there because Mm -hmm. like you just said, it's all about the viewing distance, right? If you're on top of it, yeah, it would look awful. But the fact is you're viewing it from the road. You're viewing it from uh, 200 feet or more away you're looking at I actually I should look up the dimensions because I'm curious that. but yeah 340 I mean obviously we we're talking it compressed it's thrown out all recovery information so you know we're not trying to we're trying to have the smallest file possible and I think they just do that with like all their ads because they're never going to try to recover that final ad jpeg and and start pushing colors and details around but oh you know what I have it right here hold on properties <laughs> I actually oversold it. Well, this one has a lot of white and it's 184 kilobytes huh. and it is 840 by 400 pixels. You could get away oh, with wow. like the OG Kodak's like that. Is that not a megapixel?
0: That's like what? that's like original 480p resolution right there.
1: Yeah, that is. Like uh,
0: dev.
1: What is that? 320 kilopixels? Yeah, that's not even 1 megapixel. <laughs> yeah,
0: and then like any any and any like large format printer, um they use a software, I think it's fractals they call it, that upsamples images. So even if you gave someone an you know, an 8x12 file and they needed to run, you know, a several foot banner or, or file off of it, they've got software that upsamples uh, things to fill in the fill in the details where you would normally have pixelation. It it, it somehow does some magic in it. And it upsamples files to, to discern more cleanly at larger print. So any good printer is running a fractal software to upsize things that are bigger than the files that you give them.
1: Yeah, there's a, there's a recent software that I want to check out uh, by Topaz Labs for, for increasing the size because we had to do that recently. We did a bunch of drone footage and some of the purposes that we want to use it, it's only 12 megapixel files. And some of the purposes we want to use it need more detail. So we're thinking about using... Uh, Fractals, not fractals, but Topaz Lab's new software on it, because that's actually using AI to create new details as opposed to just uh what it what would it be, interpolating or you know, duplicating details.
0: Yeah, I think it's interpolation when you go up.
1: Yeah, something like that. I don't know. I know interpolation has to do with video editing, so it's something about moving pixels around.
0: Yeah, we're um we're technical to to a certain extent, and there's some things that are gonna escape us, so it's fine if we don't know everything.
1: It's a need-to-know basis.
0: And I probably just picked up uh, a nice gulp of whatever I'm drinking here. This kombucha I'm drinking when I said that.
1: Oh, kombucha sounds so good.
0: You guys get that up there? Has kombucha made it to Michigan?
1: Oh, yeah. I'm kidding. What the hell? I'm not in, like, freaking... I'm not in, like, Saskatchewan.
0: Don't you drink, like, Fago up there? No, We're- I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> hey. Are you Juggalo- Oh, I'm that's actually, right. We, I'm we-
1: not <laughs> a fan of Fago. We have talked about juggalos before. yeah.
0: I forgot. I remember that now. Um, so, how do we jump right into our our topic here today? Um, today Wait, t-
1: b- before we do, yeah, I got a question. Have you have you been playing around with? Uh, let's talk about something useful that's new that come out. Have you played
0: with the uh, texture option in Lightroom? Oh, that's a good thing feature to talk about. Yeah, it's uh, a big part of my touch up workflow right now as a local adjustment. I actually added it uh, to my clarity and sharpness bring downs that I for use for a a preset that I called a skin retouch. So I've added texture in there as well and kind of eased up on the sharpness and clarity pull down that I was doing.
1: I'm curious. What, what is your method for making that a local adjustment?
0: Uh, So when I go into my local adjustment, it's now a slider in there so you can bring it down. I think I bring it down to like negative 50 and then like I pull clarity down negative 30 sharpness, negative 20, like in that frame, in that realm. And, i can then save that brush as a preset and i call it skin retouch or light skin retouch and then i use it to give everyone a little bit of um softness on their skin to clear up clear up some of the blemishes without getting rid of some of the texture that you see in people's skin so it looks a little more natural
1: all right all right i'm about to blow your mind okay so i've been brushing too mm-hmm. and i just uh, do you know about the uh color range like masking option
0: No, is that new?
1: Okay, so the feature is called Range Mask. And what you do is you go into any type of local adjustment. So it can be the brush, it can be the gradient, or it can be the radial filter, any of which is fine. And then you can bring down that texture slider and put it wherever you want. But the cool thing is when you get into range mask, you can use a, a color or a luminance range mask. And this is kind of like Blend If in Photoshop if you're familiar with that. Basically, you're just selecting either a range of colors or a range of tones um, to only apply that selection to. But the cool thing is once you once you choose color, I'm assuming you can do this for luminance too, yeah, um, you get a new color picker. And then you can use that color picker. And then a second thing I found out is when you use the color picker instead of like clicking on the color that you want and then modifying the slider you can just hold down the the picker and select a range so you make this little square so instead of selecting one single point you're you're basing your color mask off of the area that you select So what ends up happening is you can take either, say, the radial filter, if you're doing a bunch of consistent headshots, or even the gradient, apply the gradient to the entire freaking image, and then apply the color picker and drop the texture down the amount you want. And then you can go sync that to all of your images. And then all you have to do is go through, click the color picker, make the little square of tones you want to select, and boom, every single file you get your skin softening without any brushes, bounds, modifying the radius, anything like that. Um, it is so quick and just honestly, like I, I, I kind of feel upset that this is coming at the end of my wedding career because this would be the most powerful like, you know, retouching application for you know, a light retouching application for a vast amount of images, which is exactly what weddings call
0: for. You just changed my entire headshot workflow for my client, and that's gonna speed things up dramatically, and I'll only have to um to local um spot adjust. Actually, I also want to share this little tidbit with you. I've I've learned recently after doing some reading on Adobe's website that there is an order of operation for max speed in the development module as far as what things affect uh performance, uh what adjustments you do. So if you want the max performance, do not apply a a Global preset to everything like if you do a if you do like a look preset and apply it to all of your images like like we do because that's intuitive to how we work like I, I apply my preset to my entire set of images from a wedding and then I go in do my slight slider adjustments and then local local adjustments like the local adjustment brush and, and uh, the spot healing tool well I was reading on Adobe's website that if you do presets first you will slow down performance of the develop module so the best way to do it is to actually go in and do your spot removal adjustment first and your local adjustments, and then apply your preset after the fact. And sure as shit, it actually speeds things up. So um, on my headshot workflow now, I go in and do, local, I do my crops and local adjustments first, and then I apply the preset last and go back and tweak uh, any highlights and shadows that I need to after the fact. So it actually, you get instantaneous healing brush performance if you don't apply your preset first. Dang. So hmm. is that news? Did you know that?
1: No, I didn't know that at all.
0: Yeah. uh, When I found that out, I was happy, but then I was pissed off because I'm like, that's not how we work as photographers. We don't apply our preset last. That's not how it works, you know?
1: Yeah. But I don't think that there's any way that you could like, it it sounds kind of like uh, adding Lumetri color in, in Premiere or something like that. Like there's no way that once you modify every color and tone in the image, like you, you know, that is the maximum that you could do is change every single pixel mm-hmm. so i understand that performance suffers as a result um, as opposed to doing localized adjustments and then and then because now your every local adjustment you make it's not your original pixels that it's decoding it's all mm-hmm. of the modified pixels and if you did 15 different sliders well now it's got to you know develop the tones and then apply your adjustments that you're actively making Mm -hmm. to all those modified tones so i i guess i understand and i don't know that there would be a way to get around that from a software side but you're right it is not the way that we work
0: yeah especially on a wedding so i don't know if it helps my wedding workflow because i'm definitely not going to do local adjustments first and then go back through the set of images again to do you know my my preset um you know app applied and then slight minute slider adjustments to get through my work so yeah that's just not not feasible but for my headshot workflow it's great because it's such a small amount of images applying a preset at the end of it doesn't really change a whole lot
1: it's kind of bonkers that like these little short conversations about like hey have you tried this can ultimately just be like complete workflow breakers and change all your systems
0: oh uh, yeah it's been a major pain in my ass so trying to you know get quick response out of the spot healing tool that's it's uh, it performs so slowly but now doing it with nothing applied, it performs instant- instantaneous so definitely um, if you do a lot of spot adjustments on like headshots and stuff it's it'll speed your workflow up to do it this way.
1: I wonder if that has something to do with like why I've at least for like the last year of Lightroom have been like very satisfied um, because I think it was just dog shit slow for everybody about a year ago maybe mm-hmm. maybe a year and a half but um, you know I've been fine and that's been that's kind of I don't apply anything other than sharpening and tone curves. Like my, the rest of my module is like unadjusted. But mm-hmm. it still makes me think about, about how I kind of work because I, I have been modifying like all my colors lately. But I, I completely stay off of the, the basic sliders until like the last thing. That's, that's normally like the last thing I do. And I don't really apply a preset to that. Like my presets don't affect that. I kind of change my colors on like a per per job basis.
0: Yeah, my most of my look is founded on the tone curve, but I do a slight highlight pull down and a slight shadow push as a global adjustment to everything. No exposure change, but contrast, highlight, shadows generally are applied to every image in my preset. So that's where my sliders are at. So um, yeah, maybe I can work with that look and see if I can get around that and minim- minimize you know, using those. Maybe I could do... That slider adjustment as a two-part adjustment later, you know, I could just go for tone curve, and then um, at the end of it, you know, oh, actually no, I still got to go through every image and respond to highlights and shadows individually. Yeah, never mind, that wouldn't work.
1: Enough about our workflows, yep. <laughs> but hopefully those things that we just uh, mentioned are helpful to your workflows. If you if you missed it or need a little refresher, it's uh, range masks in Lightroom. If you look those up, that you can apply. In conjunction with any slider, I talked about it in terms of using with the new texture slider, but you could apply it to anything. There's both luminosity and color range mass. And make sure to hold down that color picker if you want to select more than one color, if you're just looking to select a range of colors. And there's also the ideal order of operations would be to do all of your local adjustments first, followed by presets and finalized tweaking that way your lightroom is a little bit more responsive in those local adjustment period which is normally somewhere that lightroom suffers ah but there is a purpose to today's show beyond uh beyond what's up and and these tips that we are giving each other and that is managing client expectations that is not the name of it it's actually when you and your client are a good fit I'm gonna go back
0: <laughs> no it's fine yeah no I, I think I think both of those kind of tie in together it's like a title and a subtitle but yeah when you and your client are not a good fit
1: that's actually what we wanted to talk to you guys about today and i guess before we we get into it let's let's talk about a a situation do you have a situation that could have been avoided and this is probably both we're gonna have to go back early in our career because we identified this and then you know we, we probably both started nipping it in the bud so that we can avoid it more in the future but Uh, Do you have any horror stories from when you did not identify that you and your client weren't a good fit?
0: Yeah, I've got one story that sticks out. um, And I I don't know that I would have known otherwise to look out for red flags, but it became apparent after the fact. And she, the bride in this case, thought she was receiving. um, she, She was upset that there was so many images that I delivered to her, which I had never had anybody complain about that. But she literally said to me, I thought you were going to pick like the top like 50 images and really Photoshop the hell out of them and deliver them to me. And she thought I do She was know,
1: getting a blog post.
0: Yeah. I don't know what, like, I don't know why that would be her expectation. I never set that expectation. I told her like what I was looking for to deliver to her. Uh, but she was really upset about it. And then, uh, when it comes to group photos, I tend to photograph things as they are. So like if I'm doing like family photos and one kid's looking, if, if I've got like if I take like multiple photos and shoot like four four or five frames and the best looking frame means that like one child is looking out of frame. I I roll with that. Like I just don't. I don't like to go back in and and mess with that setup much more. But she was upset. Like, couldn't you know? Don't you know they have software that a lot you know makes you can change the expressions. It's like she's seen those Windows commercials where like you can make everybody look in the same direction.
1: Oh, like and one head swap that was applied to one perfect situation. Sure, You're probably on a tripod. And yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, and and yeah. You know what? In retrospect, I probably could have done that. And. Um, but for me, like when I'm thinking big picture wedding delivery, I'm not thinking about spending that much time with uh, an image like that. Uh, so, um, but you know, this hasn't happened since. I've never had anybody expect that much out of me. But but I just realized now that we were in a good fit because she, you know, I'm trying to deliver her, you know, quality, quantitative experience. I want to give her as many pictures as possible. And and at that time, I was I was over delivering, and she was looking for this very tight and particular photo delivery experience she wanted to see you know just like 50 photoshop to hell images and that's not what i do i don't think i don't know a lot of people that do it that way Yeah, who
1: does who does deliver under 100 files i've never yeah, heard that
0: she was upset because there was chairs in the background i'm like yeah well there were chairs in the background i don't like, her, her wedding ceremony set up like you know i and i'm good about uh, minimizing obstruction and in retrospect i you know i don't deliver that quality of work anymore like i i'm probably a little more neurotic now about placement and. Positioning of things, but we were not a good fit, and I learned that after the fact. And there's no other way to know that without, you know, having it uh, come, you know, having it um, blow up in your face like that, you know.
1: Yeah, I've had one negative experience, and like I would say, like like one true nightmare client, um, at least in the result in retrospect. And you know, it's the only time that I've ever actually had a complaint like about the the final delivery aspect. And it's actually, it's a pretty interesting story because when, when it happened, I was so worried. I was like, Oh God, my career is over. I'm going to get a negative review and I'm never going to get hired again. And I, I reached out to like other pros that I respected and like, how do I go about this? And everybody told me like, you know, do whatever you can to, to make it right with them. And, and, uh, you know, just hear them out. Don't don't admit guilt, but at the same time, like, basically just try to find a solution. Like, what can I do to make you happy? What can I do to make you happy? And I actually did not take that advice um, because I was I was so peeved about the situation. And the situation was pretty simple. We had talked for months about the schedule, the, the plan, like from our initial consultation to to you know the the phone conversation like a month prior to the wedding like we were set up to do a first look we were set up to have ample time we were going to go off-site ceremony and reception we're at the same location but we're going to go off-site for photos and all this and then i have a final questionnaire that i send out a month prior and i request it to be done two weeks prior sometimes couples get only get it done like you know a week before the wedding so i normally don't start worrying until i don't have it like you know a week before the wedding Cause I want to have one final call with them before they're like right after I had that document, but you know, five, six days before the wedding, I want to have a final call, make sure nothing's changed and there's not going to be any surprises. And we got to like six days out and I, I'm emailing them, not getting anything, call them, not getting anything, uh, saying, Hey, I really need that document. Like I got to plan your wedding in order for it to go smooth, blah, blah, blah. You know, everything that we talked about, I think I got it about, uh, 13 hours before the actual wedding started like the night the, late in the evening eight nine o'clock the night before is about when I got it and I had to be leaving to this wedding like the next day and this is things like you know confirming you know we talked about some things but like confirming ceremony start time okay what time do we have till this ends? so I know how much time I have for family photos how much time I have to take you off site how much time when I have to leave to be back so that you're in line for your reception. So your reception starts on time. Important details, not only for my sanity, but so that your day can run smooth. You know, it's, it's kind of like an additional layer of service. And so I really enjoy making all that tight for couples because I feel like I feel like it allows me to to really efficiently handle the day and ultimately maximize the use of time and get the best photos out of it anyway. Uh, didn't get it until like 13 hours before. And when I do, there's nothing about a first look. There's nothing about going off site, all this stuff. So not only that, I'm not calling somebody at like 10 PM at night to like, Hey, why the hell is this all different than yesterday? So now I'm showing up at, you know, the time that they decided and I'm there for like three, four hours just during the prep portion of it. And then after that, so you know, we've got way too much time before she's actually in her dress, and then we have nowhere near enough time to get everything else. Now, I still do the best job I could possibly do. You know, I get the family photos, I get the bridal party, I get the two of them, but we can't go off site. Like they have something like forty-five minutes in between their ceremony and their reception, like ceremony ending and reception starting. You can't go off site when you have to do family photos, couples portraits and the bridal party in that time, right? Mm-hmm. It's just impossible. So, um and then and, and so I I went through with it. I stayed like an hour and a half late otherwise I would have missed formalities. Um and then and then they wrote me back when they got their final gallery that they were disappointed with like the lack of variety and like the locations and stuff and and I so I was ticked off. I'm like, "Well, what do you mean? You this whole time we talked about a wedding that is not how your wedding was designed at all. And you left me in the dark until 12 hours beforehand. Um, So I went through and I listed every way that I tried to reach out in advance along with their, you know, ignoring my request to complete this. I, I mentioned how I stressed the importance of this document and how ultimately I felt like I did the best job possible. I mentioned the fact that I stayed later and, I was really worried that I was going to get like some, some letter from a lawyer or something like requesting money back. Like I was just going to make her even more mad, but, uh, I, I, I don't think I, I don't think I ever heard back from them again, at least not concerning the quality of their gallery. So I, I guess that's a, a win in my book, but especially, like I said earlier, everybody was telling me like, you know, look for the solution on how you can make them happy. And I just felt like it was just a, a, a disservice to me and and the effort that I did put in to make sure their day went smoothly. Like I didn't feel at fault at all, you know, for, for how that went. And yeah, you know, we were out on one patio that we really had the opportunity to do everything is. So it does kind of lack variety, but that's because you had in your mind that we were going to offsite. I went and scouted like three different parks in preparation for this to find the best one and uh, to ultimately not go anywhere. So I was quite disappointed too. But yeah, that's uh, something that in retrospect, you know, that, that timing in advance, mm-hmm. um, those, are, those are things that I had to change in my contract so that I could avoid being put in that type of situation again because, you know, who wants to experience? I, the last thing I want to do is, is for you to be like unhappy about the variety of your photos. But if you don't let me, you know, find a solution for that, develop a good schedule and coach you on having a wedding that will meet your standards then there's
0: nothing i can do. Mhm. Yeah, and that's a big part of managing client expectations is having those conversations in advance as far in advance as possible. I'd like to be a part of that process very early on and let people know like hey, whatever planning you want to do, any kind of timeline things, feel free to run them by me. I honestly feel like we i can make a better wedding schedule than a wedding planner. Um i yep. I, mean, I feel like i i have a better sense of like and i and i and i understand the constraints of Catering, uh, wanting to get table table service out as quickly as possible, so they can ta- they can take down tables as quickly as possible. Like they their objective is to plate food and then clean up food and get out of there. So I understand that constraint, and I also understand that we don't want to keep guests waiting too long. I understand the totality of a wedding day and being a part of that process, letting people know like what stage of preparation they need to be in and what phase of the day to get max value in front of the camera, I I prime them for that expectation uh, from the very beginning with our consultation. I let them know that we will have a schedule and we will will have a phone call together where we go point for point where they are in the wedding day. And that's usually about a 15-minute phone call for me to draft a schedule with them. So I always make sure I get that covered um, at least a month out in advance. Uh, Because usually they call me and they want to know, hair and makeup wants to know what time they need to be ready for. And so I, I try to make sure I keep that as early as possible because I think if hair and makeup runs late, then they screw the rest of the wedding day. So I, I also
1: think it's the most common thing to run late.
0: Yeah, number one, that's definitely hair and makeup, uh, especially if you're in other countries. Whenever I shoot in Mexico, uh, for some reason, hair and makeup runs extra long down there for some reason. So, um, yeah. Um, then that's why it's important to have this contract and all this detailed out in your contract to set the stage for these expectations.
1: Yeah, if you... If you really want to be a successful wedding photographer, then you're going to have to look at things from other vendors' pers- perspective. And you mentioned not making the guests wait, making sure dinner gets out on time. I've had so many situations where couples are like, uh, "Can we can we do more photos?" And you're at that crunch time in between the ceremony and the reception, and I'm like, "You really can't because there's 200 people waiting on hot food in there. You know, you don't want them to wait any longer. You have, you know, if you have the style of wedding where you're, First time they see each other is down the ceremony. Then there's normally a bigger gap um, in between as opposed to a first look style wedding. And, uh, you know, you will you will get yourself in in dark water with with a vendor if you run them really late for dinner, because ultimately you're ruining their experience because now their food isn't going to be on time and and now they're scrambling to set up. So one of the best things you can do is just have an airtight schedule and vendors will really, really appreciate that and and sticking on it. So when it comes to managing those client expectations, make sure you're being open about how long it actually takes you to get the photos that you want. You know, have those ideal times, plug all that in so you can set yourself up for success, not only for your clients, but so the whole wedding runs smoothly and everybody was happy
0: with you running the show. Yeah. And I realize now we're honing in on weddings. Um, and that's this whole conversation isn't necessarily only about weddings, but it's the easy ones for us to to rely on. But I actually think about a client and another wedding client of mine who, how do you identify you're not a match, um, maybe philosophically or in the um, foundation of your work? Like, what do you do that uh, is different that they don't like or that they like? Like, I I don't like to do a lot of the can you do photos like this style of work or, you know, people should have an idea that when they work with me, that they're, that they're zoning in on a special type of work. Like not, I mean, everyone's work is special, but I'm not typing myself up. Um, But that they, see something in my work that resonates with them and that they are coming to me because they want to see themselves in those photos in that style and i had a a bride one time who asked me if i could shoot more light and airy and for some reason i said yeah no problem and like Mm -hmm. i can make that happen but we ended up not working together but at the moment, like it was because it was a destination of weddings to the to the Caribbean. I was like, yeah, I can do that, no problem. Like I'll keep my flashes at home, or you know, yeah, um, yeah.
1: I'm traveling light.
0: Yeah, I was ready to make concessions uh, about my style. And at that point, I should have realized like we're probably not a good fit because she wants to see herself in somebody else's work, not my work, and that you know that, that just stylistically, we probably wouldn't be a good fit. So we we should recognize that about our clients. Like sometimes it's okay to want to please people please a client and try to achieve a work like if if i've had clients who had a special type of portrait that they had done with a very particular lighting style and i've had to recreate somebody else's work and i was just giving them a product i wasn't really like i wasn't hung up on the artistry of it because it was a certain kind of thing they needed and i could deliver it so you know it's okay to want to please your clients and if you have the, the range and the capability to do so then go for it but when it comes to like weddings for me artistically if if they're not seeing themselves in my photos how are they going to feel after the fact when like i get some like epic flash lit image and they expected to see something with a backlit sun you know
1: yeah i mean that's something that you got to stick to your guns to and if we're sticking with weddings then you know the it's a very common theme when you're starting out that people come at you with oh you sound great because of your pricing and But can you do this? And then you go, Oh, yeah, I can do that. And then you ultimately start creating work that you don't necessarily believe in. Um, You know, it's always good to experiment and and be open to other styles, but the longer that you do it, the more that you're going to get refined into what you want to create. And you really have to just be completely open with clients when they start talking about taking your work into a different direction that you don't think that that's the best move because ultimately you're either creating images that you don't want to create or or moving your images trying to adapt your images to a style that they're not designed for and the results are just going to be underwhelming mm-hmm.
0: and i guess i want to lean on the idea of like philosophically like how we align with people maybe our our personal values our morality as far as like where we misalign with people um for something that i've been struggling with uh that trying to find a voice especially in expressing my work through uh the LGBTQ community Uh, i support it i support their unions and i'm willing to photograph them i've only done i think maybe one i think one a total i support that uh and up until recently i didn't know how to communicate that to that community and i didn't know how to word my website respectively because i also didn't want to pander to people i didn't want to be like i've seen a because of seo i think We see a lot of like keyword pandering in SEO. So I've seen like mountaintop lesbian wedding. And I'm like, oh my goodness, that sounds really (laughs) it sounds so bad. But it was like that was the title of the blog post. It went viral. But to me, it just sounds like it sounds like pandering. It's like, oh, let's let like to me, a couple isn't reduced to their Their sexuality. sexuality. Yeah. Yeah. Like I want to photograph people in love. I don't want to say that i photograph a particular kind of people in love because again pandering and also maybe it seems like you're excluding other people in that way so i'm trying to find the best way to communicate that and lately i'm getting more comfortable with the idea of just saying like hey i support LGBTQ weddings I've, I've put it in my, so now if you google tucson wedding photographers see my name you'll see that strictly you know expressed um implicitly in my in my uh, seo description uh, you know my my site description it says there that i also support those weddings uh but I don't want to pander, and I feel like there's a, a fine line between pandering and and also just saying like, hey, I support everybody's love, and I want to photograph it. So that's something philosophically that I'm trying to, uh, or not philosophically, but uh, in uh, the social issue in my my morality is trying to align that way. Also at the risk of that, like I'm probably losing inquiries from it from people who don't support those unions. And mm-hmm. how do you make that determination in your brand? Is your brand strong enough to? To support that and lose a segment of business because I know there's probably past clients of mine who didn't support it and what they have worked with me knowing that I do. So there's a, there's a big red flag to figure out if you fit with people and how you fit with people and how you communicate your brand. Um, how do you deal with that? Have you dealt with that in your own work?
1: Well, I find this interesting because this is this hits on two things that I think are both deserving of their own episodes. Uh, and we both actually have notes to do both of these episodes later, and that is one, do your personal beliefs belong in your photography, Um, which, you know, perfectly fine saying on this podcast that I find it, um, I can completely detach from my personal beliefs when it comes to the, what I am supporting. Now, I'm not saying that There's anything that I particularly hate, but I myself am an atheist. I have no religious affiliation whatsoever, yet I go to church more than most people do because of the amount of weddings that I do that are of religious, uh, you know, have some religious affiliation. Um, And the other thing that you just mentioned, and I didn't even think about that, like mountaintop, lesbian wedding, SEO aspects, you know, it's one of those things that just completely kills authenticity and and how you organically feel about something because you're a slave to all of these algorithms, which is another show topic that I want to do, which is why social media and algorithms are the enemy of creativity. Uh, As far as how I do it, I kind of keep myself a mystery on that aspect. I don't have a lot of information about, about who I am, what I support, what I'm interested in. Uh, I do have, you know, a diverse diverse type of weddings on my portfolio. That way people can see that I have photographed same sex couples. I have photographed everything from, you know, backyard, non-religious weddings to church, big Greek church, big Catholic church, big Jewish, uh, Jewish Orthodox weddings underneath a chuppah. Yeah, I even got the flavor on the chuppah. That's right. So I have, I have all that shown in images so that people can find that. But I don't have anything stand out because I don't want to make those statements that are reducing people to some affiliation, one little microcosm of their personality, because ultimately I'm concerned about, like you said, photographing people that are genuinely in love. That's what I want to capture. Those are the people that I want to work with and nothing else about them. Any other creed, religion or anything really has much to do with it for me.
0: Mm -hmm. And but there are people who specialize in like I only shoot lesbian, you know, lesbian, gay weddings or LGBT LGBT, I guess it's a mouthful to say those weddings versus um, or they only shoot. Uh, they, they special, yeah, specialize in, in Persian weddings, specialize in Jewish weddings. Like there's, there are people, I know a photographer who specialize in, uh, in Tucson's big market, Hispanic weddings. So they're photographing quinceaneras and, and uh, Mexican weddings. Like there's, there is something to be said to be marketable to that. I I personally feel like I'm, I'm available to everything. Uh, but yeah, like personal values, I guess that's a whole other episode. You're right. I'm trying to think like, what are the ways that, that we identify red flags for people outside of just weddings or, you know, weddings too but like where are the red flags like how do you what do you what's a no no no-go zone for you in terms of like who you would work with and are Um, we talking or is it also like is it also not just values but like the value of the work like is it you know how do you determine like if a client is asking for too much or
1: you know there's a ton of different things i feel like anything that gives you that slight discomfort when they ask you and and, and you kind of your shoulders shrug up a little bit like uh, and you start thinking about your response and and, you know, you know, it when you feel it, whether it has to do with price or the images that you're going to create or terms or will you give the raw files, you know, there's so many like little things out there, uh, you know, just some examples I mean, that I can think of in the frame of weddings are the Pinterest one is a huge one for me too. When when they start wanting you to create another board or they have a board that they want to share with you and they want you to recreate all those, like that's a massive red flag to me. So I try to identify that and nip that in the initial consultation about how I don't like to work that way and this is why. I answer it before anybody can even ask. And I, I think the more that you just kind of talk about those things that the ways that you work so that they can instantly identify if something's going to be a problem. Maybe they just won't even call you back and you might not know why, but you know, by just being vocal about the ways that you like to work, I think you will cut out a lot of it. Um, when it comes to value, value I find like pricing and everything so difficult. Like, I feel like a lot of people just like to make it so cut and dry about like these are my rates and there, there's, especially when we're going across different genres of photography, I feel like there's there's so many different levels to it. For instance, like the regularity of work. If if I'm going to be working with somebody all the time, I'm I'm much more likely to accept a little bit lower than I would I would put out for for a one-off client, right? Um and and things like distance come into play, like how how far someone's asking to travel. Anything that that makes you uneasy with with your typical processes, you just need to be really open and honest, immediately following with your response rather than trying to find a way just to satisfy them so that you can get the check because
0: ultimately it's going to cause problems down the road. And this is a big gray area for people based on like how frequently you're being booked and how much you're earning. Like your, your threshold for bullshit goes up considerably when you got bills to pay. And I definitely take on gigs that I wouldn't normally be be as comfortable taking uh, if um, I, you know, have to pay a bill. So I definitely think that we qualify our we qualify clients with our value system much differently based on frequency of work. And I know for you and I both right now we're we're in a position now where I can we can both say no to things that don't, don't align with our values. Now, what is the best way to go about saying no to people? How do we say no to people? How do we fire somebody? Oh, actually, how 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 do you let's just start there. How do you say no to a client? Like um, what's the best way to go about it? Any tips for people out there on how to, you know, gracefully say no thanks.
1: Well, I think you really need to lean on whatever experience or whatever justification you have for why something doesn't sit well with you. You you have to be able to openly discuss that. And a lot of it may seem may seem really rough. Like I I think a big one is that a lot of people just starting out in like wedding photography, they'll encounter it at some point. Is like giving us the raw files, right? Mm-hmm. And and there's so many reasons why why you shouldn't be doing this. But I, I guess the big reasons that they stick out to you. That's why you have to be able to immediately turn around and address it with the client and and nip it right there because more than likely, like they are just not not thinking about your perspective, right? They just want something because they heard somebody else got it. That is the case for so many of these conflicts is like, they just heard that one person got it and therefore they think that they need to want it. Or they read some terrible article that doesn't really, uh, you know, represent our industry correctly, that it's commonplace that people distribute raw files or something like that. Just to go with that example. And, you know, I, if somebody's asking me that, I'm going to say, well, I'm not willing to deliver the raw files because, well, most of the time you guys don't have the software to analyze them. And second, I don't really want my work represented in a way that I would not distribute it because ultimately my work is what represents me for clients in the future, right? Mm-hmm. That's exactly how I would respond to to that request. Uh, when it's a money thing, it's to me, I I'm very cut and dry about it, about just like, you know, I apologize that, you know, our rate's not what you're looking for. I'll give them a suggestion of somebody else that that might be willing if I if I know of somebody that is a little bit cheaper and, and they can go explore that route. You know, I'm definitely willing to help somebody out if they're, you know, talking to me professionally and, and not trying to, like, criticize me into agreeing to something to something that I'm not comfortable with. Right. Right. Sorry, my cat just, cat jumped in my lap and just walked all over the mic. Leave it. Who cares? People yeah. know about cats. Um, when it comes when it comes to value, um if somebody's not willing to pay your prices, then I will actually, if as long as they're kind about it, I will actually help them in the process of finding somebody who might be more on the value that they're looking for, because I think there's great power in giving a good referral. And who knows how that's going to come back to you, either by way of the original client or by way of the photographer that you refer them to. So um, ultimately, I'm leaning on the exact reason that it makes me uneasy, and I'm hard pressed to find a situation where that hasn't worked out for me, or if there's anything that I'm uncomfortable with. You know,
0: I think um, a lot of people struggle with saying no because they still want the money, uh, even though at, at a low rate, it feels like something they want to hop on. And then they try to find ways to like, what if we if you try to finagle with that part of that client, like, what if we did this? And what if we did that? And and they, they find themselves in an uncomfortable position position of doing work that they didn't want to do in the first place. And um, I, mean, I guess that leads back to what I said earlier. You just you know you go with it because maybe you got that bill to pay. Um but I think once you get to a place of comfort with your work and things are going well, and you can skip on those jobs and push them to somebody else, and maybe that referral comes back to you in a big way. Maybe later somebody else uh, has a job that they can't, you know, take on, and and you gave them a referral, and it was really a nothing referral, but it was something to them, you know, that could come back on you in a good way. So if you've been doing it long enough, some those things have happened. I'm sure if I if I rack my brain long enough right now, I can think of those instances where a referral came back to me in a big way. So um, I want to talk about uh, firing a client. I think this is going to go more into the wedding side of things. Um,
1: As if this podcast hasn't enough already. <laughs>
0: yeah, we, we lean on it, but I think it's applicable to a lot of people. A lot of, a lot of people shooting professionally or, who are listening are probably wedding photographers. Uh, but I, I haven't had this happen with me yet. I've had yet to have to dissolve a, cli- a contract with somebody and fire a client. Uh, but I, I know a lot of wedding photographers where this pops up pretty uh, with some relative frequency and there's always like a quick consult of like hey what should I what's the best way to tell these people we're not a good fit and we actually I actually um the consensus usually turns out to be don't ever tell somebody you're not a good fit because that kind of has come back on many photographers I know who who ended up having an upset person who was willing to go to great lengths to leave them negative reviews because they simply told them like hey I don't think we're a good fit and like uh, I, I don't even know. I don't know the words they use, like the what what uh, verbiage they use to tell somebody. But I don't know any like graceful way to be like, "Hey, your values and the way you are as a person just don't align <laughs> with who I am as a person." So I don't think we're gonna work out. Like it's yeah. like breaking up. It's like breaking up with somebody uh, in that in that respect. And and nobody no nobody like who's shopping for uh, professional services wants to feel like they were not good enough or they were rejected. So. The best way to gracefully handle this, and this is like the consensus that keeps popping up whenever I see some of my, my friend circle consulting other photographers with this issue, is to just give as little information as possible. Uh, come up with a personal friend. Hey, I actually just had a close friend who popped up with this wedding wedding date, and I'd be remiss if I wasn't able to photograph it or be a part of their wedding in some way. I'm going to have to decline our our time together. I'm sorry, you know. Or I actually just accepted a contract for um for this booking you know like come up come up with something that that makes your availability uh sparse and that you're not able to do the wedding because of some other obligation and keep it as quick as like as short as possible because the less you get into the emotional aspect of like why you don't align with somebody's values then the better you'll be off because those people won't want to shame you on on the knot or on yelp uh, after the fact
1: so once i got to a specific level of business where you know i knew i knew i was going to be okay once I got to that level I started with every couple that contacted me I would say when they initially asked about you know if you're available for this date I would say hey uh yes I am still currently available but I have had someone who has expressed interest in this date but we can still meet and um and then I explained to them that the way that I handle things is that I you know if if Two two people are lingering on the same date. Then um, I, I do quickly contact the first one before anybody makes like a final decision. Like whoever contacted me first, and they're not ready to book, then so be it. But two things: one, this creates a you know semi sense of urgency with them, you know that that somebody else is going uh, is already interested in your services for that date. But it also creates that that back out plan in case it's just a bad meeting and they still want to book you uh, situations that I've been around and it has saved me probably five, six times from working with a client or having to give them some other reason. This way they're prepared from the get go for the idea that I might not be available even after meeting with me. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's just up in the air. And, um, you know, I get, I get a lot of multiple inquiries, so it's been a little white lie sometimes but for the most part you know somebody else's expressed interest in that day but ultimately like yeah it's it's about keeping feeling safe not having anybody be extremely bitter if they wanted to book with you and you decide that they're not a good fit and um yeah you know ultimately they, they they can't turn around and say like oh well we thought for sure you were you were good for us why else would we have met you know you you're it also for me i feel like has has Weeded out some people who were like high strung from the get go, because I like working with chill people who who aren't gonna give me like you know uh, any problems. And I feel like one easy way to identify that is if they're comfortable with the fact that I might not be available and they're still willing to meet, then you know we're good. They're, mm-hmm. they're, they're my people, right? They my ideal client. That's a good identifier for me. So that's like a triple threat that identifies problematic clients in advance, gives me a way out and it creates a sense of urgency
0: yeah and i think we should all be aware of like who we want to book with like who are your ideal clients like for me personally uh, the people that i want to work with are the kind of people that i would hang out and have a beer with like the kind of people who'd you know, grab brunch with me or um, are adventurous and want to go cool places like I, I need people who laugh at my shitty jokes and who drive with my sense of humor like that's that's a big part of my experience on wedding days uh, i you know i I definitely am a little more proactively involved in terms of like the experience of someone's day as it pertains to interaction. Uh, I'm not, I'm not just a fly on the wall. Uh, You know, there's a lot going on with me. I don't want to like detract from people's experience, but I want to, I want to add to it. And uh, if we can get along like that and we, we appreciate each other, appreciate each other's energy on that level, like we're an ideal fit. So everybody should know that about their clients. Like who do you fit with?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Finding your ideal client and then creating, some type of system so that uh, you can avoid a future disaster are both really, really healthy things you can do for you know running a business long term. Yeah.
0: Have you ever had to dissolve a client with the uh, dissolve a contract with a client?
1: Yep, once and I had to do the whole the whole find a dissolving contract and 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 make that for the first time for that client and everything. It, it was a weird thing. They were very after the initial consultation and booking they were quite mysterious in that like they weren't responding to emails and picking up calls and stuff. And then all of a sudden there was like a lingering of a potential date change. And uh, ultimately, I don't actually know what the whole situation was, but I actually called the venue and asked if they had a booking and, and told them my perspective and, and why I was asking. Um, and they said that they didn't have anything for that day. Hmm. So they had either already changed the date and weren't telling me, or never actually had that venue booked from the get go. Super weird situation, but uh, ultimately I, I sent them that uh, I wasn't going to be available for their future date, which they hadn't told me. But like you know, I basically just said that like I I had concerns about working with them. This was actually before this is before I even was in that in that sphere of feeling okay with my money. Like I you know in terms of my job, like it was very very insecure part, which is. the type of client you attract at that period is like something, some weird things are going on. I never understood or figured out what that whole situation was, whether they actually had a venue booked or not, whether they ever had a wedding planned, very confusing stuff. But yeah, I did ultimately get them to sign a uh, dissolution contract.
0: Yeah. And then, and then there's the other thing that comes up, uh, the return of deposits. Like, you know, generally, if the client is ending the relationship and they are they are canceling the the wedding or or um, their relationship with you for whatever reason, contractually, if you've got a good contract, a, even a basic rudimentary wedding contract, that uh, that retainer is non non uh, refundable and you have no obligation legally to to refund it to them. Uh, but I've seen a lot of situations where that popped up in this desire to return get that um deposit back kind of comes up and i feel like photographers deal with that more than probably any of the other vendors uh do do you return that money and i think you know for some people you're more apt to make that concession or if you some people i know photographers who have had to end the end their the the couple had ended the contract and they were they were pulling out they weren't going to get married anymore and they wanted their their deposit back but uh the photographer and ultimately told them if i book this date i'll return your retainer in full uh, if not you know you're out of luck but you know, sometimes people out of the graciousness of their heart graciousness of their heart will just give those re- ret- um those retainers back but uh, contractually you have no obligation and if you're the one that dissolves the uh the contract which i actually felt this happened in one of my, my local photo group that i run uh, There was a situation where the photographer uh, was withholding the retainer and they were the one that uh, ended up pulling out of the out of the booking and it made a stink in our in our photo community. And um, I don't remember if the photographer. I think I kicked them out of the group because it was a bunch of bullshit that they did that in the first place. But yeah, so, you know, they're uh, ethically if you're if you're the one ending the relationship uh, for whatever reason, you know, you should be returning that retainer because you initiated that that uh, dissolving of the contract.
1: Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, if you're stopping, then you know it's it's your decision on your part. And yeah, I feel like that's I'd have to like look at it word for word, but I, I feel like that's kind of how mine is. Like it's open that it's completely open that if for whatever reason I have to cancel that, I would be refunding. And yeah, if it's them, that's kind of based on the date range in terms of how much money they get back. You know, if you're we're ninety days out, chances are I'm not booking another wedding. Sorry that that retainer aspect is. Is sticking with me because, well, you know, I had six months that I could have booked this and now that opportunity is foregone. And a lot of people will argue that, well, you're not doing you're not actually doing any work. And it's like, yeah, but I don't have the opportunity to do any work anymore because I've been holding out for you this whole time. So it's completely standard practice to to keep that retainer. And yeah, I agree. It's also a pretty common practice that if somebody pulls out and you do manage to book somebody else. That they will actually refund it, but completely stuff that you can you can base on your own tolerances and you know as long as it's all airtight in your contract, then you should be good to go. But yeah, with that, that, what you mentioned about the one guy doing like him ending a contract and keeping a retainer, no, that's a dick move.
0: Yeah, they were they were trash photographers anyway that that weren't even you know the funny thing was that pissed me off was was that they uh, got the referral from within our group. So somebody had made a post and said, Hey, I'm looking for a photographer and, oh. uh, usually a bunch of people will respond. And I, I do, I, I like to vet my, my referrals cause I don't want to give somebody a trash referral and ended up, um, that whole situation arose because, and then that photographer who made the initial referral post messaged me and was like, Hey, what do I do here? Uh, and so, you know, we had, I kicked those people from the group and, you know, I think they scrambled to find somebody else to replace. And then finally the people, um, Said that they would return the money, but they'd already spent the retainer is going to take a little bit of time to pay them back. And I was like, what a disaster. This is a, it, was, it It pissed me off to the point where I, I almost blew up referrals in the group altogether to tell people, like, listen, if you are referred a wedding or if you are giving a referral, like, you know, understand that you need to vet your referrals and also that if you are getting a referral in this group there's an exchange of commerce that is happening there is an expectation of of, uh, professionalism and that your job your number one responsibility is to make that person's referral look like gold i think otherwise like i'll just yank referrals out of the group altogether and i'll delete them all and nobody deserves to like have the benefit of this group uh, exchanging commerce within this group. So I, I was pissed off. Like it really, it really made me give pause to the idea of people referring work out in my group altogether.
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a dicey situation. We have a very large referral network. I really haven't been involved with it in quite some time now, ever since I've been kind of removing myself from taking on additional weddings. But um, yeah, it's, it's like one of the great things and for somebody to shit on it like that with with those type of behaviors is just like oh it's and yeah, it's got to be concerning to the entire entire referral process because like we said, mentioned earlier, you know that's so important if you're delivering a referral that it's gonna be a good one like they're gonna perform for you because if it doesn't, ultimately it can kind of come back on you. I mean I don't think I don't think any I don't think you'll ever like hear from a client, yeah you might that like oh my god this person that you referred was awful like ultimately the blame's going to fall on the person who didn't do a good job but just leaves a bad taste in your mouth like you don't want anybody to go home disappointed
0: i agree so right man let's uh let's wrap this show up man i want you to recap the entire show <laughs> What are, what oh, are the, what oh are the, okay. What are the takeaways from today's show? You're better, okay, you're so the
1: big takeaways d- from this episode is first, do not buy the Sony A7 R Mark IV until all the other Sony cameras have a red focus point. And when it comes to identifying if you and your client are a good fit, always be honest, be upfront about your previous experiences. If they're contesting you in some manner, do not feel discomfort in telling them why you do not feel comfortable about working a certain way or agreeing to certain terms. It's completely within your rights. Um, If you ever have to tell somebody that you're not available or you just don't want to work with somebody, never make it personal and tell them that, you know, you don't want to work with them because they're a jerk or you don't believe in something that they believe. Just be very vague and tell them that you're unavailable. Something else came up. You're very sorry. Try to guide people with really good referrals when you get the chance. That way you can ease the process for them. And at least they got some value out of working with you. And when it comes to firing a client, make sure that you're protected with your contract well in advance. If you're not using contracts for your services, stop this immediately. The first thing you need to do before you book another service is get a good contract. Talk to all your peers about situations that they've experienced. Make sure that your contract is tight to protect you from situations in the future. And if you do have to split with a client, make sure to do it tactfully and make sure to do it contractually by giving them a formal contract to dissolve the services.
0: Boom, I'm Justin Haugen.
1: I'm Robert Hall. Peace.